Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Ann Friedman. And I'm Aminatuso. Tuso. This week on Call Your Girlfriend, we discuss Aziz Ansari's new show, Master of None, the protests at the University of Missouri, the Irish abortion campaign, Repeal the Eighth, why Jack K. Harry is so wonderful, and my ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous love for DJ Khaled. And we are both sick. Yeah, we, I I feel, I've been feeling sick for a while. I think I'm coming down with something called walking pneumonia. Uh -uh. (laughs) Are you serious? Yes, I'm very serious. So I'm going to find out this week, but I just, everything hurts. Oh man, I'm, I'm right there with you. All of the aches plus my sinuses are throbbing like a David Guetta concert in my face. Uh, And it is not pretty over here. I'm like sweating and then I'm cold. Nasty. I know. Apologies to Gina who has to edit this and hear all of my heavy breathing all the time. It's like, it's scaring me. It's like nature's vocal fry having a cold. Uh, It's just the, it's the worst, but you know what? We are warriors. so We're going to power through. Uh, It's so true. <laughs> I don't feel like a warrior, but maybe if you keep saying it, I might the the sweats will stop and I'll get yeah. into that headspace. <laughs> I feel I feel a little bit like a warrior today because I well, got so much done, and I'm like I could die tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, the thing that I got done was watching all of Master of None, which, as you know, I'm rarely timely with my TV consumption. I am so impressed with you. That came out like last week. What? I know. The only way I watch TV in a timely manner clearly is if I get sick. Man, I'm glad you've watched that. What are your thoughts? My thoughts were I enjoyed it greatly. And also great things happen when like comedians with strong, interesting narratives about race start dating feminists, which is what happened with Aziz Ansari. I know, right? I'm like, like, shout out to Aziz Ansari's girlfriend. Love you turn him into like a great dude the other you know the thing about master of none that's been so fantastic for me is just the like immigrant parent narrative that it has mm-hmm. um and and it's something i think aziz ansari has talked about a lot actually how you know like his parents moved from india to south carolina and his whole experience and i don't know the parents episode on that show really devastated me in the best way possible and then uh, I saw a thing that he posted, I think, yesterday. On oh, my God, with his dad? On Instagram with his dad. Like, his dad, I think, is a doctor, maybe, or something. Is, but yeah. either way, like, took all of this time off to do the show. So he was like, my, my dad took all of his vacation to, to do the show with me. And then his dad told him, really, I just wanted to spend time with you. Aww. And, you know, I was like, I melted in a puddle of tears. Aziz Ansari obviously melted in a puddle of tears. Immigrant parents are the best. They just give us so, so, so much. And, you know, I also love that in his message, usually I get really annoyed when celebrities or people are like, call your parents, whatever, have fun with your parents. Some of us have really complicated relationships with our parents. Right. And I appreciate that in Aziz Ansari's message, he said, if your parents are good to you, you know, like yeah. reach out to them. And that was something that like really deeply, profoundly spoke to me. I love that. Right. And you can also see, I don't, I don't know if you read his, his book, but, um, I did the best, uh, the, I mean, 
the only dating guide that's like written for men and women at the same time. I thought it was pretty good too. And there, you know, you can really tell through the show that he spent a lot of time talking to people of different generations to sort of, to, to work on that book. And it comes up in like, you know, there's the parents episode. There's also, um, there's like an episode about grandparents or like old people. And I, I definitely like could see a thread from the book to the show. Yeah. His best friend on the show, Lena Waite is just so amazing. She's a producer and an actor. You should follow her on Twitter. She's at Hillman grad and denise forever too like such a good character yeah she um lena was part of the team that brought us dear white people so Mm. it was just like very near and dear to my heart yeah so this is this is actually like silver lining great thing to have come from like my illness for me but like to the world from aziz ansari and alan yang and Lena Waite. And I am so excited to be talking to you about TV in real time. This I know, is, it's unprecedented. This is, I like, I don't even know what to do with myself. I feel like you've thrown off the rest of the whole show now. <laughs> I, maybe I need a sick day once a week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Kickstarter for Anne, sick day once a week. Oh my god, sick day fun. Do you have like a sick routine? Because I totally have a sick routine. When I, You're like, not when you're like dying, but when you have a cold or something enough where you're like, you know that all you need to do is stay home for like two or three days and eat ramen and be a little miserable. I mean, I don't have a routine that the common denominator is extreme fluctuation between joy at getting to stay in bed and like self pity because I don't feel well. <laughs> Man, I I have a whole I like making like a weird fort on the couch. <laughs> That's my thing. I have all of the same supplies. I almost exclusively always watch the same movies, which because I want. Some, I want something that'll make me a little, um, like, feeling a little shitty. I love watching Stepmom mm. when I'm sick, because ju- you're just, like, devastated. Because you're like, I'm not dying. <laughs> yeah. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm really sick, I'll watch Annie Hall. Wow. Uh, and uh, I'll watch, like, an Olsen twin movie. Usually it takes two. I mean, whatever works for you to get back to health. <laughs> I know. It just, it makes me feel like I'm in middle school, and I wish that, like, my mom was around to take care of me that's always that's like that's my like sick person self-care yeah i mean i like to whine about it the truth is that if someone else is around sometimes i find it kind of annoying like i'd rather be sick alone truth be told but i i like to whine to other people about it for sure i know right whenever people are like can i bring you something i'm like no i would like to be alone like, miserable right leave now. it on the doorstep and let me text you about how much like my nose hurts or whatever and then like that's fine i know that's when you pull the I contagious yes (laughs) exactly girl Um, I've been contagious in years so a couple of updates from the show two things one shout out to all of the badass lady feminists from new zealand who wrote us in since the last show i like that it's like this tiny island with all all we know about them is that they're like awesome power ladies that live there also hashtag not all new zealand ladies exactly (laughs) on how we talk yeah exactly if you want to know what we're referring to you can listen to our last episode (laughs) but um yes a shout out to new zealand ladies i was very excited to locate the new zealand emoji on my uh iphone oh the the map section is like a real geographical uh minefield slash test i know especially all these like countries in oceania man they all have the exact 
exact same flag. I was sending a New Zealand emoji and then like an Australian one the next day. And I was like, wait, this is crazy. (laughs) The other thing is this fantastic email we got, speaking of Australia, from this uh, awesome listener, Alice, in Australia. Um, It was a penis muscle update, because remember, we talked about penis muscles. I I like to call them the D'Angelo muscle. (laughs) But yes, and uh, yes, and I call them penis muscles because I'm a child. (laughs) So here's Alice's email. On penis muscles, my URL friend and Shiro, Texnisa, Texnessa, I don't know, refers to them as cum gutters. No! (laughs) Which I really can't go past because it's deliciously filthy. Though I think the proper name of the muscles is obliques uh alice first of all thank you for bringing cum gutters into my life i will i will never i'm like forever changed i mean thank you slash hate you alice for bringing cum gutters (laughs) into my life (laughs) also like i love the word obliques because obviously like i know what that is because once in a while i'll you know i'll pick up like a men's fitness magazine if channing tatum is on the cover sure like i'll hear it at the gym but i'm like oh that's what they're talking about yeah, for some reason, I mix it up in my head with opaque, like as a word, which is, which is more of a tights type of term. I don't know. I can't really. Clearly, obliques do not feature in my daily life at all. That's amazing. Also on Urban Dictionary, they're called penis pipes. Oh, so good. Uh, English language, I love you. Uh, what's next? Oh, a fun little shine theory update for you. So this week, um, I guess Vivica A. Fox, the queen Vivica A. Fox, got into a little bit of um, an online slash interview kerfuffle with her ex-boyfriend, rapper. I think it was Into- a tiff. <laughs> exactly. There was a fracas. <laughs> um, rapper, her ex-boyfriend, rapper 50 Cent. Uh, it I, Honestly, like this story is great for me because I the Real Housewives of Atlanta are back and I almost never watch the What Happens Live next because we live on the West Coast now, so it's not live for us. And I'm like, ugh, I can't call in, so I'm not emotionally invested. But I just happened to watch after this episode and Vivica was one of the guests and she threw some like major shade I mean at this point it was not shade she like just roasted 50 and like you know 50 is like hyperactive on social media so this he's just been like dying for this I'll let you like read up on the thing but so all these people are angry at Vivica but uh my like one of my like childhood heroes actress jack hey harry who is a national treasure first of all if you don't follow jack hey on twitter you are just missing out her twitter feed is amazing she's just like the queen of shade in fact i think her like twitter bio is like actress director philanthropist shady boots <laughs> oh my god i'm she's, looking at it right now to see to see what it says in fact um, she's she's so 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 no so it's just all of her shows hashtagged another world hashtag sister sister hashtag everybody uh, hates chris <laughs> oh Everything. my god she's so good but she like sent out this tweet um she sent out this tweet that was like i don't have a dog in this fight but i cannot let my girl at miss vivica fox be disrespected her resume is legendary and her love is real oh such a good endorsement it's such a good endorsement and also like such a good way to be a friend to someone who is having a public fight when you don't want to get involved well, it's kind of like when you haven't read someone's book or when, or like when an author is asked to comment on, on a writer's book and, and give a blurb and they haven't read it yet. 
uh, or slash they have and they didn't like it and they just comment on the writer in general like you know a, a supreme like observer of the human condition or something <laughs> rather than talk about the book itself it's kind of the same tactic I appreciate it exactly but Anne if I die before you please make sure that on my tombstone it says her resume was legendary and her love was real that's all I want Ugh. I'm, I'm, I will engrave it myself if I can't get someone else to do it <laughs> thank you real friendship I mean, I feel like we have to talk about more serious things despite our illness because the list is long. Um, namely, everything that is happening at the University of Missouri lately, which is where I went to school and where many, I think you know a lot of other Missouri yeah. too, don't Ma- you? Well, yeah, well, you know, Caitlin, who is the fourth in our podcast, Coven also went to Mizzou and mm-hmm. so many, many, many badass queer lady feminists we know went to Mizzou. A ton. Yeah. And, and it's, it is kind of interesting because, um, you know, there is a long, long history of awful racist incidents, like structural racism problems at the university. It's one of the American institutions that was partially built by slaves and has like never really 100% dealt with the embedded racism there. And so lately, there has been this movement led largely by student activists, many of them queer women of color, to try to make some change to rectify that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Do you want to run us through the like the events on the ground, I guess? Yeah, so there are, let me see if I can I mean there this is at this point like the, the the list keeps growing and so it's pretty bad. I mean a couple of years ago uh somebody strew cotton balls on the lawn in front of the Black Culture Center. Uh. Um, and recently as in like this week um since the protests have been going on, somebody vandalized the sign at the Black Culture Center and blacked out the word black so it just said culture center. Um which, you know, is like, again, it's like it's hard to keep the order even straight because they're all this kind of classic um, sort of really violent, intimidating, racist vandalism. Um, also recently, though, I think it was right after the protest started bubbling up, somebody drew a swastika with human feces on the wall inside a dorm room. Allegedly, and I've been reading a lot of conservative blogs, and this is allegedly. I've seen the police report slash the, the receipts, <laughs> so... I'm sorry, when you're watching Fox News or listening to Fox Business Radio, there's no such thing as this facts. Ugh. And, and, you know, and also notably, the student body president was... Um, had, like, the N-word and anti-gay slurs shouted at him while he was, like, walking near campus. So, oh, my God. Um, and all kinds of other things, like, you know, members of the Legion of Black Collegians were rehearsing a play and harassed by a drunken white male. It's always a drunken white male. Scariest people. Honestly, like, those are the people you cross the street for, drunken white men, no. other side of the street. Thank you. You understand my pain. Um, and, and then, sorry, I mean, this list just keeps going, keeps going on and on. And then also there was, um, an, a student, another white male who allegedly slash, well, somebody made some threats on Yik Yak and they believe it's this, you know, this white dude, 19 year old white dude who's a student. And so what's been happening is a lot of students of color don't feel safe coming to campus or going to class. 
And there are some professors who are understanding about that. There are others who are like, show up, you have an exam, what's your problem? It's really interesting to see how in in real time, like this is not an abstract kind of civil rights question. It's like, oh, how do you deal with students who like are in your class who are feeling and slash are threatened and intimidated? Yeah, you know, the thing that's been really interesting to me too in watching this conversation is how much it's getting folded into the like, oh, college kids are just being coddled and how, you know, th- like this is a thing that everybody says now. They're just like, why are college kids so soft these days? And first of all, they don't, they can't take a slur like they used to. Yeah. Like, and I'm just you. like, first of all, Ugh. like you, some of these like older people are total idiots. The reason is that one social media. So you're hearing about it more. I'm like college campuses have always been like a hotbed of like a combination of dumb ideas and amazingly brave people. <laughs> and, but it's like, no, you have Twitter. So you, you see hashtags. So one shut up. But the other thing that I think is is really unfair because, you know, there's also all this other stuff that's happening at Yale. You can read about it on your own time. But kids of color on college campuses, on white, predominantly white college campuses, are actually the toughest people at your school. Right. And P.S. for context, I believe at the University of Missouri, which has 35,000 students, faculty, etc., only 7% are Black. Exactly. I went to college at UT Austin, Hook'em Horns. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think that our entire campus community with professors and everything was like well over 50,000. And at my, in my time, UT was 3% Black. So I would go days without talking to another black person. And in fact, in my department Mm -hmm. in um, Middle Eastern Studies, (laughs) lols, (laughs) political science and Middle Eastern Studies, but in the Middle Eastern Studies department specifically, I was the only black person. I know this because one time I missed class. I like never missed class. I missed this like ginormous class. And the professor wrote me and he was like, it was sad not to have you today. And, oh my god. And then the TA said the same thing to me and I was like, why are you guys writing me so hard? And he was like, well, you know, you're the only black person here, so we notice. But so wow. but how crazy. Anyway, back to the coddling conversation. I think that it is really unfair to lump these kids in with like, you know, I don't know, kids who are like trying to get like weirder cafeteria food or something. And also just remembering that like who you were at 22 like changes and evolves a lot right uh i'm i feel so lucky that no like national pundit was weighing in on what i thought as a 21 year old college student because i had some like half-baked crazy ideas yeah i think about that whenever there is a temptation to write about or you know sort of derisively retweet a college newspaper op-ed that's because like that's like a really easy place to find something to argue with if you are like an out of ideas op-ed columnist be like oh i'll argue with this college student and it's like you know that is 100 does not exemplify also the best of what happens in terms of organizing and thought and yeah yeah it's been the response has been pretty frustrating yeah and then there's this other like side debate that's going on right about what people think about first amendment and public spaces and like during the missouri protest so i noticed this conversation between friend of the podcast roxanne gay and uh tressie cotton cotton who is an amazing professor at virginia commonwealth university and David Simon, who is known for creating The Wire. Who is known for being a bitter ex-journalist as well. Exactly. You know, like white man. He's like the white man standing here where he got really upset um, about 
Roxanne and Tressie pushing back on this idea that, you know, it was valid that some of the, the Missouri, the Mizzou protesters felt that their, their public space was being invaded and they didn't want to talk to journalists and blah, 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 blah. And it was for a Twitter debate. It turned out really well, but Tressie was saying all these things where I wanted to reach into the, the screen and just scream yes, you know, where she's like, mm-hmm. social, she's like, <laughs> she's like, let me whisper to you, social movements often break rules, you know, or saying how amazed she was that people who proclaim to be invested in social change always appeal to rules. And David Simon obviously like kept pushing back with the marketplace of ideas. The minute sure. a white man trots out marketplace of ideas to you, Ugh. run. Always the run. marketplace of ideas is a really easy place for like powerful people slash white dudes to steamroll everyone else. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I I'm sorry, you know, you are the marketplace of ideas obviously works to your advantage. And so it's like the whole conversation devolves. And at one point, David Simon says that something is fascism. <laughs> I mean, I can't even with that. And I'm going li- to I'm going to link to this piece in our agenda, but like Tressie just like roasts him and it's amazing and just like gets back and it makes me so happy. Right. I mean, one of the other things that go- that's going on is like people are paying attention to this movement in new ways because they can directly have access to people who might care about their cause who are not on campus and they don't need to go through the media to get it. Thank you social media. Um Ex- and and a lot of journalists, especially, I mean, like I had, I had a great education at the University of Missouri School of Journalism with, with not without its blind spots though. And I think that that is a place that's, and, you know, we're in a profession that is still figuring out the exact relationship it has to, um, basically people who used to be sources, uh, becoming like, you know, a direct point of contact for people who care about issues and news. Yeah. And I think that like that's a big part of this too is like, you know, I mean, Maybe it's just because I know that about David Simon's background and in my head he's labeled as like bitter ex-newspaper person. Yeah. But when I watched that debate, I also watched it through that lens where he's like, oh, you know, like the First Amendment, like for old-fashioned shoe leather journalists like me who do our jobs the right way. Like, you know, this this idea of, that, of kind of an old media idea of like certain people have like more of a right to access. Here's my other thing with journalists also is that they always like (laughs) tell you, they're always like, it's my job. And I'm like, it's not that I don't care about what the journalists are doing. And I do think that it's important for them to be in those places. But I think that a lot of them don't really, they don't look below the surface of why like minorities might not trust the media, for example. Absolutely. Or that the trust is earned and can quickly be lost, you know? And so that's, so it's just like always appealing to this, like, it's my job. And I'm like, who certified you? (laughs) When did we agree to this as a society that we're supposed to trust you at all times? It just, yeah, it drives me crazy. And also just because you have a right to be a reporter in a public space on a university campus does not mean you have a right to... Uh, have anyone you want to speak with you speak with you. I mean, you have to earn the the trust. And this is like exactly what you're saying. You have to earn the trust of sources, especially people who have been historically misrepresented by people doing the job that you're trying to do right now. Exactly. Um, let me read you one thing from Tressie's amazing essay, because Please. it really stayed with me. This week, we have witnessed a phenomenal act of social movement making in an era when many, myself included, have wondered if meaningful change in the U.S. is still possible. 
Some of that worry is about aging, I'm sure. As you get older and the people around you get older, you are inclined to wonder if the kids can ever be as all right as the kids you were. Yeah. We overstate our youthful courageousness. Then, because we are wily from age, we defend that overstatement by understating the courage of the youth who displace us. That may be natural, but when a cross-campus coalition of student-athletes and student-citizens at the University of Missouri organized to force the retirement of the college president and future transition of the university system chancellor, they did something remarkable. That's so good. Yeah, no, she's, I mean, it's true. People just, it's so crazy to me how the conversation went quickly from like, look at what these kids accomplish in a week to media, media, hot take, hot take economy, just garbage so quickly. And for, you know, I just, I'm so in awe of what those kids made happen. Right. And are continuing to make happen because I think it's also important to note that Concerned Student 1950, which is the name of sort of the core group of student organizers named after the the push to initially integrate the university in 1950. So, believe how recent. Oh my God, that's like 30 years before we were born. That's insane. I know. Anyway, but that group still has a long list. I mean, and they're very, we, we can link to it. They're very easy to find that have to do with structurally and systemically addressing the racism at the university, not just replacing the president, which is the goal that they were able to achieve already. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of pay attention that even after the hot take stop, like these these activists are probably still going to be at it. Exactly. Well, in your um, community of, you know, like Mizzou friends, who are, who have you been talking to that's um, working on the ground or kind of thinking about or thinking about these issues? I mean, there are obviously because alumni are old, there are like warring Facebook groups, a racist one and a concerned student 1950 solidarity one. But I called Dr. Marsha Chatlin, who went to the University of Missouri, is now an expert who studies a lot of social change movements and who paid particular attention to Ferguson and what people took away from observing those events and participating in them. And so I I kind of had like an alumna to alumna conversation with her about that. Amazing. Hi, Marsha. How's it going? Hi, Anne. It's good to be here with you. You're in an airport right now. I'm always in an airport. I've just been having a great opportunity to travel, to talk about my book, to talk about current social movements. So this is always the best time to grab me in transit. Oh, well, I'm glad I caught you then. You and I have a very important bestie in common, which by the transitive property of besties means you and I might actually be besties already. I think we already are. (laughs) For the purposes of people who don't have a bestie in common with you, you could tell me a little bit about the work that you do and what you're an expert in. So an expert, I don't know, but I own it, own it. (laughs) I'm a professor of history at Georgetown University, and I specialize in African American history. I just published a book about girls and teenage women during Chicago's Great Migration called Southside Girls Growing Up in the Great Migration. And it's really an examination of black girlhood and its importance to the urbanization of African Americans. So that's my kind of academic specialty. That specialty in women's history has really translated into kind of an ability to observe race relations and to kind of have conversations on different frequencies about what's going on now and what's going on in the past. And so I spend a lot of time talking to communities about the unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, last year about Black Lives Matter and gender 
And so in a lot of ways, I think of myself as kind of a community teacher because I go to different communities and I really try to share with them the tools and the perspectives that they need to kind of have these conversations, um, you know, after I leave. Yeah. And you are also a graduate of the University of Missouri. I am. I'm a really proud graduate of the University of Missouri who, like many of us, are just kind of watching this current situation unfold with the clash between student movements and power structures and looking at the tough work of all of it. It's just this experience to kind of watch places that you've been and people you love who are involved in this struggle and really wanting to be present for them and really wanting to help translate to people who are not familiar with these places and these people about kind of why the stakes feel so high right now. And what do you tell people who aren't, who maybe aren't as familiar with what, why the stakes are so high or why, why this particular movement and this moment is so important? I try to explain to people that the University of Missouri kind of goes through these five-year cycles where you start to see the rise of a student movement. And I think that there is some institutional response. There's some meeting folks in the middle. But I think that sustainability piece is really hard for Missouri and for other universities. I don't think that Missouri is that different in terms of racial tensions and the things that students are struggling against. I do think that Missouri is distinct in that the presence of the Missouri School of Journalism makes kind of everyone really media savvy. The work of the student journalists, I think, helps shape that culture. I also think that people don't realize that this is a long history of activism, but the thing that has changed in this moment are the tools for organizing, and that's social media. Right. It's really interesting that the tools for organizing that have really empowered and fueled a lot of social justice movements in recent years are also the things that have sort of upended media and that journalists are still trying to figure out in many ways how to use and get comfortable with. Right. And I think that this kind of recent conversation that um, in some ways I think is valuable, but I really, really caution against folks getting really distracted by this conversation about press and its relationship with this movement. I think that because of the dexterity that organizers have with social media, the journalists don't control the narrative in the sense that you don't necessarily have to rely on journalists to spread your story but it's helpful to have them present to narrate the dimensions of it. And at the same time, I think it's also kind of interesting that, you know, social media and a lot of the rumors that were coming out on social media about whether the KKK was on campus and whether white supremacist groups were on campus and the way that social media allows for the circulation of rumors and misinformation also illustrates why we still need skilled journalists who are part of reporting the story. Absolutely. I mean, I I certainly want to live in a world where activists have direct access to people who care about these issues and and a platform that isn't media controlled. But I agree that it's also really important to have people who are checking facts and who are using a little bit more of a professional process to tell stories. Like, I I want those things to both be happening. Right. And who have, like, some self-restraint, right? Like, everything that doesn't, um, that gets put out on Twitter and everything that you know, is said, you you don't run with. I mean, we know with our journalism training that, you know, all the accuracy checks we had to do as student journalists and at the same time, the desire to be the first one to break the story and really wanting to be part of a breaking news moment, I think is something that can get very dangerous for 
young journalists, especially not to get sucked into. Right. And I think that, as you pointed out, the dynamic at the University of Missouri that's different is sort of the way that journalists are still learning how to do that and like still honing those skills and basically coinciding with activists who are still trying to figure out how to use platforms to tell their story the best. It's like, how do you expect that there wouldn't be hiccups there or wouldn't be conflict? <laughs> it just, it, uh, it's, it's like what pisses me off, but, but you know, beyond, um, I, can't, I can't even describe it because this idea that a movement will kind of know what it's doing immediately is such a disingenuous critique. I mean, this is why personally I can't tolerate too much critique of black lives matter not doing X, Y, and Z, I, you know, for a movement that is like a year old, wow, look at the ground that they've covered, look at the things that they've had to grapple with and develop, and most people can't, you know, like, organize their towels in a year, so this <laughs> movement is going to just be, like, so pulled together. It's, it's, it's just ridiculous, and at the same time, right, the ability of a movement to take its critiques and its mistakes and make them valuable is also the type of thing that every movement needs a lot of support around. So the Missouri moment is not going to be a perfect moment and it doesn't necessarily undermine the value of what's happening. I often tell my students that the March on Washington in 1963, people got mad at each other. There was tons of conflict. There was sexism. There were all sorts of issues. And it just never takes away from the fact that 250,000 people gathered in the same place on the same day asking for the extension of civil rights. It doesn't take away from that. It actually makes it a much cooler story. Right. And, you know, you've done so much teaching around Ferguson and, and those events and the that organizing that happened. I'm curious if you were to sort of start to create a nascent like Mizzou syllabus or to, to try to start to craft a narrative around that. Is there anything you know you would want people to read or to pay attention to? Not to kind of like be gross and self-referential, but I think it's really interesting if folks kind of looked at the time that I was there when the movement was called Inclusion Now and we had an activity called The Hate Report where we basically published all the graffiti on campus and we had people write firsthand accounts of bias and hate crimes on campus and you see a direct line between the things that we were publishing in 98 and 99 to the experiences that our students are having. But one of the impacts of the hate report was that the university put together a really good bias reporting system and the response in terms of organizing an LGBTQ center in a really professional manner. You know, I feel very proud to have been part of that movement. But one of the things that people have to realize is that, you know, it isn't that students are rabid and out of control or hypersensitive. It's that they're living in a climate that is so informed by a history of violence that it's kind of seeps into your DNA the longer you stay on campus. And so I would love for people to use the internet, which is our friend, <laughs> search of what Missouri was like in the 90s, what Missouri went through in the 80s with the question about divestment from businesses that did business in South Africa, and see that this is a, this is a very activist and very progressive campus that has flown under the radar and now... I think our long history has an opportunity to be told to a national audience. Yeah, I hope so too. As, as another proud alum, I really hope so. Um, well, Dr. Marsha Chatlin, thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for inviting me. And the last thing I want to say is just it's so important to hear women's voices. And I'm so excited that so many of the organizers 
were women and that although Jonathan Butler was a student who was hunger striking, he said that this is something that queer women and women of color on this campus were working on. And so I think that if this moment is going to teach us anything is that sexism is so gross that like we're just not having it and that makes me very excited too yeah women the the forefronters of every movement ever ever that ever happens All right, this week in menstruation, a shout out to some awesome Irish women who have been tweeting the intricate, intimate details of their periods at an anti-choice politician, um, which I love as an idea because like basically wanting to regulate um, abortion and all the ways it's performed is sort of saying like, let me get up in your body. And it's like, okay, well, if you really, if you, you really want to get up in here, this is what it's like. And um, it's, they're doing it in support of the repeal the eighth campaign, which is the Irish abortion rights campaign. That's awesome because yeah, it's like, I love Ireland, you know, and people always talk about Europe as this really progressive place, but when it comes to abortion rights, it's legit dark ages over there. Yeah. I mean, Catholicism, we have so much to hate you for, but, um, (laughs) but, um, these tweets are awesome. Like this one says, I got my period two days ago, pretty heavy flow at first, but now just occasional spotting hashtag repeal the (laughs) eighth. What else? I like the idea of like the daily update too. It's like color consistency. This one says my period feels like a bowl in a China shop, but instead it's a shop of my uterus. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Also, am I the last person in the world to know that on the earlier days of your period, the blood is like really, it's like that vibrant, vivid red, whatever. And then it just gets darker as it progresses. I mean, bodies are different, but yeah, no, that has been my experience. That's what the, that's what the gyno doctor told me. And I just looked at her like, what? They did. I'm like, I'm very plugged into periods. I did not know this little factor. That's, so I felt, felt really a stupido. That's why I didn't, I, I never understand women who faint at the sight of blood because I'm like, don't you menstruate? What do you do on day two? <laughs> <laughs> I've never understood it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I, I am not afraid of blood at all. But, you know, it's like those early days, you're like, Woo, this is this is amazing. I know, crime scene levels. Just, yeah, it's like very, very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, well, uh, yeah, like, I I feel like, you know, there could be some international period tweeting to support this campaign as well, because Lord knows the women of Ireland deserve abortion access. Uh, Shout out to all the Irish babes. Shout out to Irish babes. Yeah. I think I already know the answer to this, Anne, but have you been paying attention to DJ Khaled recently? I mean, I rely on you for all my DJ Khaled news, so I'm I'm this is I'm gonna hear it now. DJ Khaled. <laughs> I mean, please, please, yes. That who like you know, he's just like slowly I, I just didn't realize how delightful and just like a mainstay in my pop culture life he'd been. But he's he's recently released this new album called um I don't remember what it's called, in fact. <laughs> Let's guess. Is it called Still Winning? Top of the Game? Uh, no. Something? <laughs> T.J. Collin has some like very memorable one-liners or interview kind of quirks. One of them is him saying the word jewelry. <laughs> jewelry. I have so much jewelry. I got more jewelry, and it's not even about the jewelry. Another one is him trying to pronounce the word accurate. 
My sound is accurate. It's a real sound. And I made sure that... Another favorite was him trying to explain how he's been trying to work with Rihanna for a long time. And for, for some reason, I'm making the biggest air quotes, her team will not release her phone number to him. <laughs> but allegedly, they're friends. <laughs> I really want to work with Rihanna. And she's my friend. She's my friend. I just... It's just, they won't let me get her number. Like, I'm confused. <laughs> I call everybody, can I speak to Rihanna? And she's my friend. I don't know why they won't let me call her. I just, yeah, he's just like a big, confident man. And so utterly ridiculous. I That's what I'm going to spend the rest of my weekend listening to. I mean, okay, to be fair to DJ Khaled, though, like, don't you have those people in your social life who you see quite a lot? Like, often it will be someone's significant other or something, and then you think of something that, like, maybe you want to text to just that person, or there's something, you, you want to get in touch with that person directly, and you realize that because you always get in touch with them through some other person, like, <laughs> you don't have their phone number. I'm just saying, maybe, maybe it's it's possible. But You're if- right, and DJ Khan and I have the exact same relationship <laughs> with Rihanna. I would also <laughs> like to text her something. We are friends, but I don't know how this is happening. <laughs> I mean, all he does is win, so he'll eventually get her phone number, right? Oh my god, all he does is win. <laughs> DJ Khaled, thank you for everything you do for the culture. I love him. <laughs> DJ uh, um, Alright, I'm gonna should I do the outro then? Yes, please. Oh, okay, great. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download our show on the Acast app, which is great, or on iTunes, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can tweet at us at callyrgf or email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. Also, this is a new thing. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. Gina! Gina! <laughs> uh, see you on the internet, boo. See you on the internet. We the best. I represent the hood. I represent the ghetto. I represent the people. I represent you. Listen up! Listen up!